Thank you for listening to the Active Lexington podcast. I know it's been a long time since I released an episode. My goal for 2017 was to record eight, seven or eight interviews and release them as a full season before I started doing some more interviews. Just didn't get a full seven or eight interviews completed. So I do have three interviews that I am going to be releasing because they're interesting conversations and I've been holding on to them for an awful long time. So thanks again for checking out the podcast. In today's interview, I interview Alex Mead. And Alex is an ultra cycling specialist, I guess you could say. And his interest and participation in the sport of randonneuring is how I originally learned about him. So we talk a lot about that in this episode. And we also get to learn about his work as a bike builder and just his general thoughts on and inspiration for working as a bike builder. So again, it's a fascinating interview with a lot of information and I hope you enjoy listening to this episode of the podcast. So thanks, Alex, for coming over today or this morning. My pleasure. Uh, my pleasure. Riding your bike over here and probably whether you don't mind riding in, but nah. a little, little bit wet weather. Uh, so in this podcast, I love just sharing stories and, you know, collecting stories with um, people that I've heard about and find interesting uh, that are local. And I've heard, we've never met, but I've heard your name mentioned multiple times, both as for two kind of areas. One is being um, a long distance cyclist and doing some of the events that I've done in the past. And another is your work building bikes and being a bike builder. Can you kind of explain, let's, let's go back to the beginning. How did you get into bikes? Like your name is associated with bikes in my mind. How oh did you gosh. become? Well, I, I, I guess I'd have to say I grew up on a bicycle. I mean, I, I, in my younger years, I lived in a coastal area that was uh, quite congested, especially in summer. And my whole family used bicycles as transportation so from an early age, I learned that I was either going to have to walk or ride a bike, and it was a lot quicker to ride a bike. So that's, you might say, how I started. Um, and it's, it's been a natural thing as, as I have gone through the various phases of my life so far. Uh, first as a kid, just as transportation, and then as a college student, using it again for transportation without owning a car. And as an adult, there was a brief period when I first started working that I probably didn't do a whole lot of cycling. I just thought about it a lot. Um, and when I moved to Kentucky, I found this was a wonderful place to ride. Uh, and it rekindled my passion for riding. And, uh, I don't believe I'd ever done a century before I, before I moved to Kentucky, but quickly found that this was a wonderful place to ride any distance you want. And eventually got hooked up with people that ride, what we call ultra distance here again here in Kentucky and it just seemed a natural fit and I've I've done that ever since so what when did you move to Kentucky 1989 and at that time was there a group locally that you kind of started cycling with or 
did you just start see started, the roads and yeah. go? Start well, riding? it was a little of both. Uh, I started on my own, just realizing this was a very nice place to ride. Uh, and after I started riding, I did hook up with uh, the um, um, Bluegrass Cycling Club uh, as a, a group of like-minded folks. Um, and for a few years, rode consistently with that group. But as I started riding longer and longer distances, uh, I found that there were fewer and fewer people that were willing to do that, uh, especially on a schedule. You know, typically, if one's going to go out and ride a century, it's a six-hour time commitment, and it's hard to find other people that have exactly the same free six hours to go ride. And so I found myself riding mostly by myself. Um, my wife and I also did a lot of riding, mostly on a tandem. Um, so that that was really my companionship riding was if I wasn't riding by myself, I was riding with my wife on a tandem, which was great. Does, does she ride, um, not on a tandem also, or do you guys ride together usually when she's riding? It, if we're riding together, it's on a tandem. She doesn't do a lot of riding on a single bike. Hmm. That's interesting. So how did, so if you'd never ridden a century, I'm really fascinated by the ultra stuff. And we kind of talked before we started this. Um, I have a little bit of experience with it. But how did, if you had never ridden a century prior to coming to Kentucky, what drove you to start riding farther and farther and farther? <laughs> That's a good question. Uh, I think the only answer I can come up with is that it was a, just a challenge. You know, you, one goes out and rides 25 miles and says, well, that's interesting. I wonder if I could do 50. And so you do 50 and, and you say, well, you know, can I do 100? And, you know, maybe you can, maybe you can't, but eventually you can. And then once you've done 100, you say, well, now what? And so it, it uh, I guess it's a, it's a, it's, either a sickness or a or self challenge. I'm not sure which, but it's, it's all, it's all about seeing how far you can go, at least for me. Um, so at that point, it clearly, if your introduction to cycling was, you know, for transportation purposes, when you were younger, clearly when you're riding hundred plus miles on a day, that's not for transportation. No, that's no. It's purely for enjoyment, exercise, challenge, you know, it, I think, when I was younger, it was about enjoyment and challenge. It, you know, as one gets older, one finds a need for you know, doing consistent exercise in order to stay fit. So probably it's now more about enjoyment and, and fitness rather than challenge because I know I can do it. Do you remember what your first was your first century an organized ride or was your first time you went over 100 miles just you getting out on the bike on a weekend? It was just me getting out. Yeah. Yeah. Do you remember where you took off to ride or? You know, that's a good question. I don't, uh, you know, the, the ride I probably remember the most as being the, the, the biggest challenge on my way to riding a century was we were meeting some friends at cave run Lake and I said, well, you know, maybe I'll just ride up there. And I remember looking at the map thinking, holy cow, that's, that's 60 miles. I wonder if I can do that. And so, you know, lots of planning and, you know, agonizing about it and, the morning came and I took off and got there and I felt pretty good. So I think, uh, th yeah, that's probably the most memorable. I don't, I don't even remember my first century. So the, when you do an organized century, so let's talk about the logistics here a little bit. So when you do an organized century, 
it's pretty nice because you have other people out there on the roads, but also you have stops for fuel yep. every conveniently when you need fuel usually. Um, and sometimes you don't even need it at every stop when you're self-supporting these longer rides. How do you go about, how do you go about doing that? Do you stop at gas stations or do you carry a lot of stuff with you? How do, how do you? Yeah, I, I carry everything I need. And at this point, nutrition wise, I, I'll do a hundred mile ride on three bottles of water that have some kind of stuff dissolved in them. Uh, you know, there are a number of products out there that work pretty well that provide electrolytes and calories. Um, and, and I know exactly how much, uh, intake I'm, I'm doing just by knowing how much I put in each of those bottles. So to me, a century is a three bottle ride with, with, with nutrient nutritious stuff dissolved in the, in the water. Um, but it's hard to ride a hundred miles in this area without encountering a store somewhere. And so right. if I need to stop or if I just want to stop, I'll pull in there. And, you know, I, I love the, the, the little stores out in the countryside here. They're typically staffed by people who are as interested in why you're there as you're interested in why they're there. Um, so it's, it's a, it's a social stop as well as, as a refuel stop. Yeah. I remember when, um, I first moved to Kentucky, I went to graduate school, uh, when I first moved here and I was just starting to ride more and more in the roads and just the beauty of central Kentucky made me want to be out on the bike more. And one of the things I did during the week to trick myself into taking the time was I would ride, uh, to Spears and then go down, you know, to the ferry and back. For me at the time, that was pretty challenging. And I would always buy a lottery ticket at the store yeah. at the top of Spears. So yeah. it was like my reward, I guess. I don't know. It's the way I tricked myself into riding. Yeah. <laughs> and part of it was yeah. just that interaction with, you know, the people in the store. Yeah. They kind of yeah. got used to seeing me and that was a whole lot of fun. Yeah. Yeah. I know. I, I, I completely understand that. It's, that makes a lot of sense. So you rode a hundred miles on your own. Um, did you do an organized hundred miler soon after or again, the memory's a little foggy there, but <laughs> I'm sure I did. I've done quite a few organized centuries. Uh, I, I enjoy the company as, as much as I enjoy riding by myself. And it's nice to, to mix it up sometimes and do it with a group. Uh, it's, you know, it's a different set of challenges and, you know, different set of interesting things along the way. So what I'm trying to work towards is, so I know that you've done some randonneurs. First of all, I think, can you explain to people what randonneuring is? Um, I had no clue what it was until someone introduced <laughs> me to it. So can you explain what that sport is or what yeah. it is? Well, first I'll give you the definition my wife has come up with, which is randomly wandering about the countryside. <laughs> um, but probably a more concise definition is one that our longtime RBA randonneuring uh, coordinator here named Johnny Bertrand called it, which was fast touring with time limits. And so essentially... That the course is laid out by somebody and the riders are given a cue sheet or these days GPS coordinates for those that use GPS. And there's a time limit uh, based on the distance, uh, not only for the entire distance of the ride, a time limit, but also there are time limits 
for various checkpoints along the way, which are typically set up at convenience stores. Um, and they're, they're not, the convenience stores are not staffed by somebody who's part of the ride. The, the way it works is one simply gets one's card initialed by the convenience store clerk along with the time that, that we were there. So um, it is a timed ride of, of fairly, fairly good distance. The shortest ones are typically 200 kilometers, which is 125 miles roughly. And the distances go up from there. Um, and they're, they're often out and back, out, out, the, out and back the same route they went out, but some places do loops. Um, and they take you through very interesting and scenic places, especially in Kentucky. Yeah, I think, so I've only done a couple of them or a few of them. And I think the first one I did was a 200 kilometer one, maybe started in Paris, Kentucky and rode to like the natural bridge area and back something along. Yeah. That, that one have been maybe one of the ones that started at Johnny Bertrand's house. Uh, it could have been. Yeah. Um, I think we, uh, we somehow got the cue sheet from someone and kind of went and did it on our own time. Like oh, okay. We didn't do yeah, it when yeah. it was organized, but um, it was it was a lot of fun. I got to, I mean, one thing I love about, first of all, I love bike touring. So um, I've actually done some like bike camping, you know, where you camp along the ways, and I've, I've enjoyed that. One of the things about that that I remember is I was on some roads in some of the counties that, I probably would have never traveled by car right? and you get to yes. experience some, well, we, that time specifically we experienced some dog encounters that were, <laughs> that were fun, but no, we got to see a lot of, you know, the counties that we've, I would have never driven. Yeah. Um, is it similar? Like, have, I mean, I imagine you've done a lot of these, I mean, significantly more than I have. Is there a lot of places in Kentucky you've traveled by bike that you would never travel by car? Absolutely. Most of the places I've, I've ridden, either doing my own rides or organized randonneuring events, are places that I would have had no reason to go to by car and certainly not by the route that, I, that we took. And that, that is one of the wonderful things about Kentucky is there are numerous back roads, all paved, that... If you were in a car, you would never explore. Whereas if, if you're on a bike, it's very likely you'll take those roads if you if you look at a map first and figure out ways to go where you want to go and keep and keep you off the main roads. So we're we're really wonderfully equipped here in Kentucky for that. Just uh, having having alternate ways of getting places uh, that are by and large free of traffic. Is there, so when I think of Kentucky, I've mostly spent a lot of my time in central Kentucky. Um, I've experienced some parts of eastern Kentucky only to go hiking and stuff. Are there some roads out in eastern Kentucky that you've ridden that are especially memorable? I think there's some hills and stuff yeah. out there that I've not experienced it. I know other cyclists have talked yeah, about. Yeah, between Boonville and Buckhorn, for example. Which some... is actually where. I'm not sure where uh, that might be. It, I think, you know, uh, Perry County, maybe? Okay. It's, it's, it's two counties. Boonville and Buckhorn, are, I believe, are in different counties. But there are some long, steep hills there. There's a famous hill outside of... Um, Irvin, Kentucky, called uh, 
uh, oh boy, I can't remember. I want to say Iron Forge Road, but that's not that's not the name of it. Oh, I'm sorry, I'm not coming up with the name. I've actually never ridden my bike around there. I've actually I actually have driven down there, and as I was driving, because we went to Irvin to a camp, and then we drove up um, to the Gorge area from there. Um, and I remember right or driving on those roads thinking they would be interesting to cycle on. Yeah. So you, I agree that one of the amazing things is how many of these small kind of back roads are paved. So I'm from Nebraska and everything's gravel. No, oh, like yeah. a lot of these back roads are gravel. Um, how do you see like when you're on these back roads, just like, even if you don't see many cars, like what's the interaction of like, with the community or, you know, even with drivers on those roads? In general, it's, it's courteous. Um, as a cyclist, I I pick and choose who I ride with and I try to ride in in myself and with people who are courteous towards traffic. Um, and that's, that's very important to me to be a, um, as an emissary of the cycling community out in the countryside to be courteous, polite, respectful. And almost invariably I find people reciprocate. Uh, it's, I, you know, people ask me, you know, what it's like to ride in the countryside. And I say, well, it's a, it's a lot easier than riding in the city, you know, in the city, people are impatient, in a hurry, inattentive on their phone, what have you, uh, not so much out in the country. Um, and there's less traffic, of course. Um, on the other hand, one does have to be a little cognizant of the fact that people may not be expecting a cyclist. So, you know, when cresting a hill, for example, keep to the right, um, common sense kind of things. But I much prefer riding out in the country to riding in the city. The expectation of seeing cyclists, do you feel, it seems like there's, many more cyclists today than there was five years ago, especially 10 or 15 years ago. I guess I don't know central Kentucky 15 years ago, but is cycling at least in our area continuing to be a growing sport? Do you see best? I can tell it is Uh, certainly in the city. I see more cyclists every year Uh, for many, many years. I commuted to and from work by bicycle and, probably for the first 20 of those years, I never saw another cyclist. And by the the last five years, I saw a lot of cyclists. So I know, at least in the city, um, whether for commuting or general transportation, there are a lot more cyclists. Out in the country, I would say I do see more, but it's still a little bit of a surprise to be outside of either Fayette or Woodford County, out out in what you might call the boonies, and see another cyclist. It's, it's, It's still a surprise. Yeah. Um, yeah, you know, I was able to talk to Troy Hearn, who kind of heads up some of the pedestrian and cycling for the state of Kentucky. Um, and he was talking about the evolution of, you know, road cycling becoming popular and then, you know, other types of cycling. I feel like I see a lot of people talking about gravel bikes and, you know, sure. gravel riding, which I haven't done, but it looks pretty fun um, and places to go. So, just kind of look, walking through your evolution, I still want to keep going farther into this ultra cycling stuff. I think that's a space that um, not too many people venture into. You know, a 100-mile bike ride is probably the ending distance for a lot of people. 
Yeah. So when you you said 200, 300, 400 um, K is the distances on these. However, I know that there's also a 600 and then kind of my perception of the sport is that there is this one event that many people look to called Paris Brest Paris, which is, I think, 1,200 kilometers. That's correct. Um, And it's only every four years. Is my perception right? Is that like the Boston Marathon of Randy Noring? It is. is, Absolutely. It is. Absolutely. Um, What's special about that event specifically? (laughs) I guess I can give you my perspective on it. I've done it once. Um, First of all, it's, I believe, the oldest continuously held cycling event on open roads. Um, some in the back, I, I seem to remember that there's one in either Australia or New Zealand that's that's been going longer, but it's older not. Older than the Tour de France? Oh, much older, yeah. Um, it, Paris-Brest Paris started in the 1880s, I think. Oh, wow. And it's run roughly every four years, not exactly, but roughly every four years since then. So it has been around a long, long time. Uh, the other thing that makes it special is riding in France, which for those that have never done it and enjoy cycling, it, it's something to do because the culture there is very is different than here where uh, you know, a cyclist here is still viewed a bit of an, as a bit of an oddity, especially out in the country in Kentucky. In France, it's recognized as a very popular thing to do. Ride your bike around the countryside because the countryside, like Kentucky, is beautiful. Um, do they do it for exercise, transportation, for everything? Boy, I really don't know. My guess is is everything. I mean, one certainly sees people doing their grocery shopping by bicycle, and I, I have to believe they're, you know, riding to visit their friends by bicycle. And right. and then one also sees, you know, racer clad groups of folks out riding uh, of all ages. It's not uncommon to see what we would call very old people on bicycles in France doing, you know, get getting it done. It's it's pretty impressive. You know, right. these, these folks have been clearly have been riding a long time. And in fact, I, I have to relate that just last week, uh, a Frenchman set the hour record for his age group uh, his age being 105 years. What? Yeah, I am not kidding. Uh, it's been within the last week, and his, you know his hour his hour distance was not incredible, as you can imagine. But still, here's here's a fellow who's 105 years old who's still competing, who can still has the mobility and health and fitness yeah, to be on a bicycle. Too. Absolutely, that's amazing. You imagine that, or at least I imagine, and I don't know the story. I'll have to go look this up. He's probably ridden a lot of miles, right? Has Hoppers. to have. Yeah. In 105 years, you know he has. Yeah. That's, um, that's pretty amazing. So was when you started doing the randonneuring or ultra distance, did you start doing randonneurs initially or was you, did you just decide to go over 100 miles? Well, I decided to go over 100. And I'd seen, as part of the Bluegrass Cycling Club, I'd, calendar i'd seen these really long rides and if you know when i first saw them i thought that's got to be a misprint you know (laughs) but this doesn't make any sense but as i started riding longer distances and talking to other people that 
ride longer distances, I discovered, lo and behold, there's a group of people that like to do really long distances, and that's what those events were in the calendar. So it was, it was, it was a bit of a natural there. I would imagine, so my experience with other sports and, you know, kind of the, the fringe, <laughs> uh, right. the fringe end of sports um, is that there's usually a small kind of group of people in every community that do that stuff. Is there, are there more than just you that are doing it here? Or? Oh, yeah. Yeah. I mean, I, I won't say there are a lot. I mean, yeah. it's probably in, in Lexington and Fayette County, there are at least half a dozen of us, oh, maybe, cool. maybe more than that that I don't know about. Um, and some do it. Some do the events every year. The qual- there are qualifiers every year. Um, some do the events every year. Some just come out on the years that they're planning to do a 1,200-kilometer long event. Um, but in, in Kentucky, uh, typically, we'll, for the 200K ride in late February or, or early March, we'll very often have 20 people at the, at the start. Um, by the time one gets to the 600K, it depends on if it's not a Paris Brest Paris year, the number will be small. If it's a Paris Brest Paris year, it, the number might actually be larger than it was for the 200K because people will come from other states to do the ride here just because it's sched- convenient schedule. So I was one of those people that did not do the 600K. Um, however, it's hard for me to imagine 600K in Kentucky without traversing a lot of different terrain. Um, <laughs> That's true. <laughs> yeah. Does that, uh, who organizes the, the randonneurs right now? And um, do they all start in central Kentucky or do we have them in western Kentucky? And- well, uh, there are different regions and there is a Kentucky group and it, it happens to be run by a fellow named Steve Rice who lives in Shelbyville. And so he is the RBA, which stands for Regional Brevet Administrator, I think. Um, maybe something in French that I don't know, but, uh, <laughs> he's the RBA and it's the RBA has the, can, can set up the course as he or she wishes. And in this case, he sets them up starting and finishing in Shelbyville where he lives. Um, there are other, there are not other groups in Tennessee. Uh, there, excuse me, there are not other groups in Kentucky. There is a group in Tennessee out of Nashville. There's one out of Columbus, Ohio. Um, and most, I won't say most states, but most of the surrounding states have, uh, a randonneuring community and an RBA. When you're training to ride 20 miles or 30 miles, a lot of it is getting on your bike and just being consistent. But when, and we talked about this a little bit before, um, when you're training to go farther, and I think I mentioned that in the 400K event that I did, it was actually sleep issues that I found yeah. to be very challenging. So what does training look like? I mean, you have to think about, obviously, the fueling, which yep. you, it's not like you can't carry it in three bottles right. when you're doing you 1,200. Cannot. No, you can't. Um, you have this issue of sleep or not sleep or whatever. So yeah. how do you train for this uh, type of event. That's a really good question, and I think people do it differently. So I can tell you what I do. Um, first of all, in terms of physical training, um, obviously one cannot go out 
well, maybe it's not obvious, but one cannot go out and ride a 400K every weekend because it takes a lot out of you physically and mentally. But if you consistently ride centuries and maybe even centuries two days in a row just to get your body used to riding that long without having the sleep deprivation problem, that's pretty much, that's good training for the distance part. And, you know, I call it butt time. You know, you just need the butt time. Um, and so when it's, when it's hot and heavy into the training season, you know, I'm, I might ride uh, up to 150 miles, let's say, on a Saturday and 100 miles the next day. I never exceeded that in terms of training, weekend training, uh, for distance. And then also one needs to think a bit about um, speed and strength. And so to me, that's short rides, uh, short, fast rides or even working on a trainer, you know, with, you know, intentionally working on speed and distance exercises, intervals, ladders, sprint work, uh, which seems the anathema of long distance riding, but it, it actually does help. Uh, weight training, I find incredibly important. Uh, you're, uh, you're not only your legs have to last, but your upper body too. Uh, and uh, randonneurs have a number of well-known maladies including something called Shermer's neck, where quite simply your neck muscles can no longer hold your head up. Uh, and, you know, physically, you cannot hold your head up, which is an, a really, uh, it's a bad thing. And, you know, when you see somebody with it, it's, you realize they're in trouble. But I feel like weight training and strength training can help that a lot. Um, so to me, training is, is across the board. Again, just a, so just to recap, the physical part is uh, butt time plus speed and strength work and, you know, getting enough miles under, under you that you know what works and doesn't work and you can change things. And that leads to nutrition, hydration, and sleep. That part, I, I feel, is best learned for ultra-distance riding by doing things like the qualifying rides for the long-distance brevets. So the 200K followed by the 300K followed by the 400K followed by the 600K and figuring out on each of those events what worked and what didn't work and changing it. So that by the time you get to doing a 1,200-kilometer ride, you, you have a plan. You know exactly what's going to have to happen, when you're going to sleep, you know, when you're going to eat, uh, what to look out for in terms of fatigue and, you know, numbness, for example, in your hands and feet. Uh, so the, I, I guess I can't stress enough that you, one needs to go under into a 1200K with enough experience to have a plan. Without that, uh, you, you're probably not going to finish. Yeah. Yeah, it's... You learn a lot through experience. Yeah, right? and I don't know any other way to do it simply because, you know, in my observation of people that do randonneuring, the answer is different for almost everybody. Yeah. Yeah, I think, you know, I interviewed uh, Tim Jenkins, and he had just completed his first 100-mile trail run. Wow. And interestingly enough, I, it sounds like principles for training are not dissimilar so he talked about time on feet on the weekends. And okay. So they would, yeah. you know, they would track how much time they had on their feet, you know, not miles and not speed, but just time on their feet over the weekend. It yeah. sounds very similar to the butt time. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. But when it comes to nutrition and hydration, like 
people absorb calories differently. People's hydration needs are different. Yes. Um, so it kind of is an experience thing. You just got to test it and, and tweak and test and tweak over time. Yeah. And and as an engineer, you know, I, I always, you know, I go back to having a plan and, and on Paris, breast Paris, I watched people that didn't follow their plan and, a large number of them didn't finish for various reasons. The, the, the DNF rate on Paris Breast Paris is typically 30%. And just in talking to some of the people that didn't finish, you know, a lot of them, a lot of the issues were related to trying things for the very first time in the middle of a 1200 kilometer ride, which at least in my opinion is, that's a bad plan. Yeah. I have the, so I had a, you know, kind of a five year period where I did some Ironman triathlons and I had this little I don't know if it's a trick or not but it's something I did it could even be superstition um where I would do math in my head and oh that's interesting just just simple math and if I start struggling I would know that I was in trouble like if I couldn't start doing simple mathematics I would be like "Uh oh my nutrition's that's fascinating I don't know if it was a good tell sign but it's something that I continually did um (sighs) And my thought was either A, I was pushing too hard. Yeah. And so, or B, uh, my brain just didn't have the glucose it needed to function. You know, and the reason I find that fascinating is I find myself on really long rides, like more than 400 kilometers, doing math in my head. And I wonder if it's something that... (laughs) There might be something to it. I think there's a... So what's interesting to me also is there is a type of person that is attracted to these endurance kind of ultra events. And in triathlon world, um, I see a lot of engineers (laughs) that trend to that world. And I think a part of it is natural talent has something to do with being able to complete and compete at the highest levels in these events. However, to participate in them, there's a lot of planning a lot of structure. And I think an engineer's mind, tell me if I'm not an engineer, so you tell me if I'm making this up, but uh, an engineer's mind is geared towards these events. And these events are attractive because if you follow a plan, create a plan, follow a schedule, do it over time, you can get to your end goal. Yeah. Well, is that part of it? Well, I've, I've certainly never thought of it that way, but it's, it's very possible. I mean, I guess the reason I haven't thought of it that way is that's the way I approach everything. So. <laughs> right. <laughs> but, right. But, um, it, I, do, I do agree, though, that you know, if I look around at the randonneuring community, the people that, that do these events, a lot of them are technical people yeah. in some way. Uh, there are a lot of physicians, dentists, engineers, computer programmers, um, you know, people that do technical things. So I wouldn't argue with your hypothesis. Yeah. Well, that's, you know, potentially why we both result or end up doing math in our heads yeah, when right. we're tired. Could be. <laughs> Could be. It, it might not be physiological at all. In um, fact, I do remember on the, the year I did Paris, Brest, Paris, I was trying to make myself quit doing math in my head, head and I couldn't do it. I mean, it got, it got to be like sort of a brain worm. It's like, why can't I stop doing math problems in my head? And I remember thinking at the time, man, I'm burning glucose doing this. I shouldn't be doing this. I need it. I need that glucose to move down the road. Yeah. That's interesting. <laughs> yeah. That's a good point. 
Um, so in Paris, 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 or in the 1200 kilometers, we talked about, you know, the hundred milers, they typically have these aid stations. Um, but in Randonneurs, you're typically just stopping getting it checked right. off. In these longer 1200, it's the same way. You're yep. just in the countryside. Yeah. You, the, the deal is on Randonneuring, you are self-supported. Okay. Uh, it's now, a part of the sport. It's a part of the sport. Yeah. Um, in recent years, I'm going to say, unfortunately, there's been a trend toward, um, because it's allowed in some of these long events, including Paris, Brest, Paris, to have support crews help the riders, which, okay, that's, that's fine, but it's, it's really not in keeping with the, the, the tenets of the sport. And I, I don't know, to me, that takes something out of it. You're really not on your own when you have a support crew waiting for you at every control point. And really, the control points are there just... The only thing one has to do at a control point is get the card stamped and the time noted. But typically, at the control points on something like Paris, Brest, Paris... There are people selling, you know, baguettes with cheese or what have you, and so there it's it's possible to get food and and sometimes there sometimes there are even local bike shops that'll be set up with uh, you know mobile repair stations if you need something. So all that, of course, is unofficial. But the the only official thing is getting the card stamped. Everything else is people seeing an opportunity to help cyclists and you know maybe make a you know, a few, few euros for their local high school club or something like that. Right. Know? Yeah. Yeah. That, you know, so let's talk about the bikes. Let's go into the engineering a little bit. All right. Maybe, um, again, a world that I know nothing about. So I'm super interested in this. So in triathlon, um, bikes are usually carbon fiber, you know, they're, they're built to be as fast as possible Yes. with, uh, the design, the aerodynamics and everything. Um, that would be a very uncomfortable position yep. <laughs> when you yep. start riding long distance. And I remember I had to actually the bike, uh, we have hanging on my wall. The Eisentrout is a bike that I got when I started doing randonneurs. Um, and it was fine for that, but explain to me what, what needs or what thoughts go into a bike that you use to ride this far like durability, uh, weight, like what are all the things that need okay. to go into this? Weight is, I'm going to go out on a limb and say weight is unimportant. That's not really true, but uh, it falls pretty far down the list as compared to the list that uh, a road racer or a triathlete might have. And the reason weight falls pretty far down the list is because on something like a 600-kilometer ride, you've, you have to carry some amount of gear. You're probably carrying three water bottles. And so whether the bike weighs a pound or two more is not particularly significant. The other thing that additional weight can help you with is durability. Um, you do have to finish the ride. So, for example, riding racing wheels with you know, 12 or 14 or 16 spokes may not be such a good idea because if one were to break a spoke, that could be the end of the ride. Uh, so what is important for randonneuring and ultra distance rides, in my opinion, as a bicycle designer and frame builder who works with a lot of randonneurs and ultra distance cyclists, the two more, most important things are fit and comfort. Fit is, is, um, it is objective, but it's somewhat subjective as well. And fit for a randonneur may not, well, I'll go out on a limb and says, 
let's say is not the same as fitting a bike for a triathlete. The position is very different. Um, it is geared so that one can apply maximum power to the pedals at the same time not stressing the upper body. That's, that's really what it comes down to, to fitting a randoneering rider to a bicycle. When somebody comes to my shop uh, to fit a bicycle, we spend about three hours first doing basic measurements on the person and then doing experiments on an adjustable fitting bike to get the fit optimized for that person. The formulas that one sees on a lot of websites for how far, for example, the handlebars should be from the saddle, those are averages. Um, so if to the extent that any given person is average, those formulas will work. Um, I've been building bicycles for about 20 years and I've kept track of all the fit data, um, both what the formula would predict, the formulas would predict and where people actually come out. And you know what, on average, that formula is, those formulas are correct. But I have yet to build a bicycle that is exactly what the formula would predict simply because nobody's average. Right. So fit is critical and it's, it's worth doing right um, because it keeps the stress off the upper body while still allowing you to put the maximum power on the pedals. Number two is comfort. And comfort means a lot of things to different, different things to different people. For most randonneurs, uh, comfort is in part due to what the frame is made of. So uh, for randonneurs, I'm typically making frames out of steel and stainless steel. Well, I guess the reason I'm doing that is that's because those are the materials I work in, but most randonneurs are interested primarily in either steel or stainless steel uh, because of the flex and comfort it gives you. That's very different from somebody who's racing or, or otherwise riding a lot shorter distance and absolutely needs maximum power transfer to the pedals uh, at the expense of comfort. Uh, and perhaps even fit, uh, and those material choices will be very different, um, typically coming down to carbon fiber and aluminum. So uh, comfort and fit are the two most important things. Uh, durability is a, a, a clear number three. Uh, you, you have to finish, right. and so a lot of the ultra lightweight racing components are maybe not such a good idea when, you're, when you know you're gonna be riding 600 kilometers on rough roads, in the dark, maybe even the rain, you might not see every pothole. Uh, and if you have to stop and fix something by the side of the road in the middle of the night in a rainstorm, that's a bad deal, especially if you're 40 hours into a ride and you're really tired. And my thought, tell me, I may be misled in this thinking, but my thought um, in riding steel was if I did have an issue on the road and I, you know, steel might be something I could bang back into place a little bit you can't yeah. really bang carbon fiber back. Or, or aluminum yeah yeah that that is true um not that i've ever had to do yeah. that but it is one of the thoughts i've uh, i'm trying to think of the closest i've come to that i i've never had to do that either but uh, as part of the bicycle building business you know i got get contacted by very interesting people and i i had one fellow email me from turkey a couple of years ago with some pictures of his broken bicycle frame, uh, a bike that he bought used at, 
you know, it was, it was a mass produced bike from years ago, high quality steel bike, but it was probably 30 years old and it had broken. The, some of the tubes had broken. And his question was, can this be fixed? <laughs> and I said, well, you know, at least being steel, you can try it. And he found himself a welder and got the bike fixed and continued, believe it or not, to China on that bike. Oh, wow. Yeah. So, yeah, it's, it is fixable. You're not necessarily going to be able to fix it in 10 minutes by the side of the road, especially if you have to find a welder. Right. It, you at least have a better chance. And, it, you know, unlike aluminum and carbon fiber, if something gets bent, it can be bent back if it's steel. So, actually, let's go back a little bit because you've been hinting at it, um, but we didn't speak about it specifically. So, you build bikes... Now, I just started following your Facebook page, so I've only caught a little bit of it. Um, so tell me a little bit about that. So you, people from, you build bikes for people all over, yes. specifically Randon North. Like, what yep. is the bike building that you do? It, it, is, it is typically geared toward randonneurs and ultra-distance cyclists, although not exclusively. Um, I advertise nationally in several magazines. Some of them are specifically aimed at ultra-distance cyclists. Um, but most of the people that come to me are just people who want something they can't get in a bicycle shop. That's what the custom bicycle business is about. Um, people that, you know, there, there, there are any number of reasons for getting a custom bicycle made. The number one and oldest reason is your, your body proportions are not aligned with what you can get in a bicycle shop. That's number one reason, but that's very rare. Uh, more, more commonly, people know what they want. They can't find it in a bicycle shop. And and maybe they not only know what they want, but they want something that's not what everybody else is riding. So they'll right. get a custom bike made. It's it's really, a, it's a fun business. And, and, you know, bottom line, nobody absolutely needs a custom bicycle. But a lot of people want one. Yeah. So how long have you been building bikes then? About, uh, I said 20 years. I think it's actually 18. Yeah. Yeah. How did... Uh, so I'm trying to do the math back in my head, but so did building the bikes start happening about the same time you started riding long distance or no, how does one get into a bike building? (laughs) You did say you're an engineer, so maybe that's part of it, but how does one get into the bike building? Well, that's a good question. I think people get into it different ways. I, I did come at it as an engineer, just thinking it would be something really interesting to do, you know, both from an engineering perspective and, because of the craftsmanship and the metalwork, which is two things I really enjoy. So I, I just, I got into it because I wanted to try my hand at something that I thought would be a, an interesting engineering and technical challenge. And it sort of took off from there. And has steel always been the material you worked yes. in? Yeah. Um, and honestly, I've had no interest in, in, in uh, carbon fiber and aluminum. Uh, first of all, there, there, there is not a whole lot of market for custom aluminum or carbon fiber. There is some market for custom carbon fiber, but there are so many commercially available carbon fiber and aluminum bikes on the market today that this, the space for custom builders is tiny. Uh, whereas with steel, there, while there are some steel bicycles, and there are plenty of steel bicycles on the market, there, the number of high-end steel options is very small. Um, most of my customers like the look of lugged construction, so that's mostly what I do. As 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 is your that's the way your Eisentrout is built, um, 
And finding commercially mass-produced lugged steel frames that of high quality is, is very hard today. So it's, it's, it's more about where the market is than, than anything else. So uh, one of the persons who introduced me to the sport of randonneuring um, is a local guy by the name of George Allen. And part of his love was just looking at custom-built bikes. Oh, like, yeah. You know, just finding stuff on eBay or, you know, just he was really into that. It seems to me, or at least as I watched through him, um, and my old college roommate has a custom bike building business. As I've watched them, it seems like that world of custom bike builders and people that are really into that is also kind of a small, close knit group of people. Like yeah, are there, when you are in the world of ultra cycling, you go to randonneurs, um, how do people that are into custom bike building, do you go to conferences together or how do you uh, communicate? Cause like a community yeah, sure. like that probably has a lot of stories to share about. Oh yeah. Um, well there are of course things like Google groups and listservs and so on and that, and that's, that's the main way forums. That's the main way people communicate, but there is, uh, one national event that's held every year called the North American handbuilt bicycle show. Uh, which moves from location to location. I, it's in Salt Lake City this year. Um, and there are regional shows as well. There's some in the Pacific Northwest. There's one in Philadelphia. There's, I think there's one in Austin. Uh, so there are, there are shows. And builders can exhibit and, you know, swap stories and talk to potential customers. If you're not an engineer, or even if you are an engineer, I mean, it seems like a a skill or a trade that, would be good for apprenticeship or something. I guess maybe that's what I'm wondering is like, um, when you started, did you just start hammering out some steel or like, how did you, if there wasn't anyone local that you could go into their shop, how did you get started reading? In the, yeah. I oh, mean, okay. There, there are a number of wonderful books on how to build bicycle frames. And, and I started just by reading. And so combination of reading and thinking it through the engineering of it came up with a process that, you know, has evolved over the years, but that's how I started. Um, once I'd been doing it for a while, I actually did go take a class. There are classes offered in frame building, um, mostly to make sure I wasn't doing something foolish or dangerous. Uh, thankfully, I was not, but, you know, got some more experience there. Um, but it is a self-teachable thing. For somebody who's technically inclined, it, it's very self-teachable. Um how long does it take to make a bike? It yeah. seems like, I mean, it may be a weird question or yeah. maybe self-serving, but it seems like for me to build a bike would take a very long time. But it, maybe if you have a process, I don't yeah, know. It, it, process, processes and tools make all the difference. Mm -hmm. um, and over the years, you know, the other part of my business is building tools for other bicycle frame builders. And I ship those around the world. But... You know, I, I like to believe I'm pretty well equipped with tools that I've designed and built to do this to the point where if I'm building a frame exclusive of painting, uh, the time I'll have in that frame will, will range from a minimum of 35 hours to a maximum of about 60, depending on the complexity of the bike. Uh, that's, to build, that's to build a frame and a fork. And the tools that you build are custom design tools that you've... 
developed over the years yeah. for your process? Uh, some of them are the things that I've developed for my own process and made available to others. And some are ones that other people have suggested and said, hey, here's a good tool. And I look at their suggestion and say, you know, that's, that's a good idea. And, you know, do you mind if I make more than one just for you and see if I can sell the rest? And then finally, there's sort of a third leg of that, which is people will send me their, their drawings and say, Basically, will you be my machinist and make my parts? And I'm happy to do that, too, if I've got time. Yeah, that's interesting. Um, and it allows you to connect with a lot of bike builders. Oh, I love it. Coming yeah. to you. Oh, absolutely. It's, that's that's the, most fun of, the most fun part of this whole business is all the interesting people I get to meet. Right. So we've had some discussion about Kentucky and riding on the roads. But I, I just want to highlight it because part of this podcast is finding out fun stories and meeting interesting people. But the other is highlighting Kentucky. Um, we're probably biased, but I think that Kentucky has a lot of great resources. Yep. Um, you mentioned that central Kentucky, when you moved here, you started riding farther. You said you hadn't done a century until you moved here. That's right. Um, what, a, what about it? What about central Kentucky or what about Kentucky in general? made it special to get on a bike or motivated you to get out on the roads? Yeah. Is there well, first we have the weather. Uh, it's easy, easy to bicycle 10 months a year, seriously ride 10 months a year, go out and do centuries 10 months a year. And if you're really hardcore, you can do it 12 months a year. Um, so we have pretty good weather. It doesn't get horribly hot in summer. And when it gets cold and icy, the, the cold and the ice don't stay around for too long in winter. Uh, they, they come and go and in between the, the bouts of ice and, and cold, one can get out for a ride. So we have weather that is really conducive to riding here. But the second thing is we have all of these back roads that are paved and with, with low traffic and to the point where people that come here from other states to do the randonneuring events will comment on what the, they joke that Kentucky has a million miles of paved Bicycle trails, which of course are our back roads, but from their perspective, coming from other states, we have just almost an, a limitless list of choices of places to ride. Um, you mentioned growing up in Nebraska, where I'm guessing the paved roads are not as common. And, Correct. And typically in regions where the paved roads are not as common, everything is on the paved roads from motorcycles and ambulances to Winnebago's and concrete trucks, and that just doesn't make for fun riding. Here, one can go out, especially in central Kentucky, once you, know, once you get out of the city and out of Fayette County, it's not uncommon to ride for 10 or 15 miles and not see a car. So that, that to me, is, is priceless. Yeah. Yeah, I, I think that's a good perception. I mean, that these back roads do feel like limitless bike paths yeah in any many ways partly because of the low traffic yeah i mean you do see traffic but it's pretty sparse it's in really a lot of sparse. these places yeah which is nice and that was one of the things when i first moved here is i was nervous probably the first week or two thinking i didn't i was used to having four foot or some shoulder um but that's because there's a ton of traffic yeah. <laughs> on those highways yeah. where i'm from and then when I moved here, there was no shoulder. And I was like, oh, what am I going to do? 
but then I didn't see a car for an hour. And then I'm like, yeah. Oh, that's what you do. And, and I think to non-cyclists, it's, it's a little bit odd that we feel comfortable on these little back roads. But what I've discovered is that in these back roads that are hilly and twisty, the people driving motor vehicles on those roads are not driving fast simply because one has no idea what's around the corner or over the hill. It could be a deer. It could be a tree in the road. It could be a farm vehicle. It could be a little kid. One simply doesn't know. So once one gets off the busiest of the rural roads, people drive pretty slowly and carefully. And I think that works to our advantage. And as we talked early earlier on in this session, you know, I think courtesy goes goes both ways. But my experience has been nothing but positive. You know, the only, the only times I run into trouble with traffic is really in the city. Yeah. No, that's that's so true. And, you know, the other part of it is people say, wow, you know, Lexington is a horrible city to ride a bike in. Maybe. I think all cities are horrible to ride bikes in. <laughs> One simply has to be tuned in and, you know, equipped for urban riding. And I, I don't think Lexington is any worse than any other city. I mean, there's certainly places with more bike lanes and so forth and more awareness. But really, I don't think we're too far behind in terms of being able to ride here. And it's improved quite a bit. Over oh, absolutely. The last yeah. Years. Yeah. The city, the folks at the city have, have really made an effort to get bike lanes out there and make it possible to ride. Yeah. However, when you're 10 minutes from the edge of town and then at the edge of town, you have wonderful cycling for miles and miles, yeah. it, it becomes pretty special too. Well, yeah. And I, you know, people say, well, you know, what do you, where do you ride? I say, well, I take the most direct route out of the city and then work, and then get, then take it from there. Yeah. So just get out of the city. I mean, cities are not great places to ride. Like we talked about earlier, people are just not paying attention. They're in a hurry. They're so on, you know, all, all the reasons that make it hard to drive. It, uh, when we looked at purchasing a home, it actually was something we considered is like, how far do we have to get to a road where we can be out of town riding? Yep. Um, and it was a good decision for a lot of years because, you know, we're three minutes from being on just riding territory. Yeah. So I don't need a bike trail next to my house. I just got three minutes away and I'm out on the roads. You know, and I, I will say that, you know, Lexington is not perfect. Um, it's, it's far from perfect actually. And, and I, when I commuted to work daily, you know, pretty much 360, you know, 20 round the clock, round the year, you know, other people would say, well, you know, help me design a route from my house to work. And almost always it was possible to design a route that was on non-trafficked roads. But every once in a while I'd talk to somebody and I'd look at where they live and there was no way. I mean, my suggestion was if you want to ride your bike to work, you need to move. <laughs> you know, don't live on that road because, you know, you live in a subdivision that has... Yeah. And one exit and it's onto an unrideable road. That was, hate to tell you, a bad choice of a place to buy a house. <laughs> so. Yeah. I, um, there is, you know, New Circle Road is an infrastru infrastructure that makes it challenging to find a lot of ways to get from outside the circle yep. to inside if you do live outside yeah. the circle. If Belt, you need to commute downtown. Beltways in general and seems to me in every city that I've spend enough time in to understand what the beltway has done beltways 
cut roads, you know, because not all roads go under the belt or over the beltways or across them. And so when a beltway is installed around a city, it's going to cut some of the roads that we would choose to ride on. Yeah. So I love living outside the circle because I can get to roads. However, when I need to ride for commuting downtown, actually from here, there's paths into the, into new circle that aren't bad, but I know it's not that way for everyone. So to finish up the podcast, um, I usually finish up with, I call them rapid fire questions. They're just short questions. You can answer, you could take as long as you want to answer, but, um, they're meant to be just simple, fun questions. Uh, can you, over the last six months, can you name a ride that really stood out in your memory that you went and did, whether it be organized or just on your own, a time that you got out on the bike that you recall? Well, heck yeah. Two weeks ago, I I got out and did a century and it was raining. It was 60 degrees, but it was raining, you know, and I knew I was going to have to clean the mud and the worms off the bike, but it had been cold for a couple of weeks and it just felt great. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I think that explains a lot about, uh, your riding style. You, you know, a lot of people don't like riding in the rain. Um, but to your point, like if you're prepared, you can handle everything. Um, so if you're going out on a ride, what is one item piece of equipment other than the bike that you just have to have with you that you can't leave home? without well, a helmet for sure but uh you know great pro- answer by the way <laughs> yeah well i've just seen too many things that happen without helmets and i understand the arguments about not wearing helmets and okay that's fine but i wear a helmet um bright clothing be visible uh so things i can't leave home without visible clothing and if it's even remotely overcast flashing rear lights and i've recently added flashing front lights oh nice yeah um, is there a certain jacket or Jersey or something that is especially bright that you, <laughs> that you grab more often than not? Uh, if I really want to be visible, I have one that's bright orange with reflective stripes that unfortunately is not made anymore. It was made by Mavic. Mm. Uh, it was a wonderful Jersey. And, uh, if I'm not wearing that and I need to be visible, I wear a, a really nice reflective vest that as randonneurs, we are required to wear when it's not light. Right. When you look at like your introduction to cycling and then you're becoming a bike builder or becoming an ultra distance, was there a person or group of people that you saw as mentors or that specifically kind of propelled you further along the path? You know, I have one friend from junior high school that really converted me from a recreational cyclist to what you might call a serious cyclist. And he was probably the catalyst for that. Oh, nice. So this goes back a long, long time. Yeah. Yeah. That's very cool. Uh, So I appreciate your time and coming in today. Uh, the sport of ultra distance, um, cycling is something I've only dabbled in, but when the thing that I love about it the most has always been the people that I've met along the way. Um, I mentioned I did some in Atlanta and St. Louis and the people are fascinating and you always get to meet the coolest people. And, and now I 
get to meet you, which I hadn't met you before today. So I really appreciate you coming and doing the interview. Is there anything that you, anything else you would like to say or where people could reach you if they're interested in learning about your bike building services or anything like oh, that? Sure. I mean, you know, I'll always plug my business, but you know, it's Alex Mead bike works and you can easily find me on the web or on Facebook and, uh, I'd be happy to, I love to talk about cycling and bicycle design and bicycle building. So if you got an hour, give me a call. <laughs> but uh, other than that, thanks a bunch. It's been a pleasure. Yeah. Thanks so much, Alex.